other. I would pray that you would flood us with the light of understanding so that we can each grasp the significance of your message and see it with clarity. Give us a diligent and obedient spirit and the powerful assistance of your holy grace so that we may hear or learn and apply what we hear to your honor and the eternal salvation of our souls. Amen. Our uh, Old Scripture, Old Testament reading is going to be found on page 11 in your pew Bibles. It's from uh, the book of Genesis, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you have here tonight, boys. That's what you've earned here tonight. One game. If we played them ten times, they might win nine. Not this game. Not tonight. Tonight, we skate with them. Tonight, we stay with them. And we shut them down because we can. Tonight, we are the greatest hockey team. You were born to be hockey players. Every one of you. And you were meant to be here tonight. This is your time. Their time is done. It's over. I'm sick and tired of hearing about what a great hockey team the Soviets have. Screw them. This is your time. Now go out there and take it. I love that. I don't know the first thing about hockey, but man, every time I watch that, I want to suit up and go play. <laughs> awesome. Although if I went and tried to play hockey, since I don't know how to ice skate, um, 
probably would fall on my face and be a big bloody mess. Uh, but coaches like Coach Herb Brooks have a way of inspiring players to, to bring out the best. He sees in them what we don't often see in ourselves. He looks at hockey players in the eyes and says, you were born to be hockey players. Yes, great coaches have a way of seeing things that even their players don't see. If those hockey players, those young college-age hockey players were honest with themselves that night when they came into the locker room, they weren't expecting to beat the Russians that night. No one thought that they would be able to beat the Soviets. After all, the Soviets from 1964 till 1980 had won almost, had won every gold medal. In fact, in uh, international competition, the Soviets were 27 and 1 and 1. An exhibition game in February, the U.S. Olympic hockey team had already played the Russians, and they had been beaten, defeated, whipped, 10 to 3. No one thought that the U.S. hockey team had a chance, except Coach Herb Brooks and his 20 American players that night. When Jesus was crucified on a Friday, no one thought that his movement would last Judas, one of his own disciples, had betrayed him. Peter had denied him three different times, but mo- and most of his disciples had abandoned him once he was crucified. Yes, no one thought that the teachings of Jesus and the works of Jesus and the movement of Jesus would last, except Jesus. Jesus knew that he was going to rise again. Jesus knew that empowered by the Holy Spirit, his disciples would continue the movement that he had started. Jesus knew that one day we would all be here in this sanctuary as a result of the earliest disciples' commitment, dying commitment to make disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, after his resurrection, before he ascends to heaven, Jesus gives his own locker room talk. Now, it didn't happen in a locker room. It happened on, the, on top of a mountain in Galilee. We find it in Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 18 to 20, the very last words that Jesus speaks in the gospel of Matthew. Jesus looks his disciples, after he's risen from the dead, he looks his disciples in the eyes. He looks Peter, who had denied him three times, right in the eyes. He looks Thomas, who had previously doubted the reality of the resurrection. He looks Thomas right in the eyes. He looks at young John. Young John, who who no one thought would be able to lead a movement. He looks him right in the eyes. And he says these words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Regardless of who we are, regardless of what we have done, that is our mission here on this earth. Jesus tells all of us, his followers, to go and make disciples. Every church that is worth its weight is focused on the Great Commission. Because it's the last thing that Jesus tells us before he ascends to heaven. This past week, 20 of us had an opportunity to go to our, our, our new denomination's national gathering, ECO, the Covenant Order of Evangelical Presbyterians. They had a huge conference. It was a great meeting, uh, better than any Presbyterian meeting I've ever been to before. All of the talks were focused on the Great Commission in some form, how we as the church can be mobilized to go and, and make disciples. During one of the talks, one of the speakers said, the church exists for the sake of others. The church exists 
for the sake of others. Our focus as the sent of God should be on how we can glorify God by, by ministering to the needs of those outside the walls of this place as we seek to make disciples of Jesus Christ. The earliest church, as you read the book of Acts, you can see that they understood this reality. The earliest church knew that it wasn't their job to make each other happy. They didn't survey each other and say, what kind of worship service would you like to have next week? What kind of sermon series would you like to have next month? Did you like our closing song? They didn't ask those kind of questions. They were focused on how we can make disciples of Jesus Christ, doing whatever it takes to bring the gospel to those who are very far from God. So how do we do that today exactly? What can we do to help make disciples of Jesus Christ here today in Amarillo, Texas? What should be our strategy exactly? Well, to find out, turn to your your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 27. As we look at the Apostle Paul, one of the most effective disciple makers the world has ever known. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 27. However, before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit to open our eyes and hearts at the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Heavenly Father, we know from your word that unless you build the house, the workers labor in vain. That apart from you, we truly can do nothing. So in this time together, Lord, as we gather around your word, I pray that you might give us eyes to see what you want us to see, ears to hear what you want us to hear, and hearts that might be open and transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. In the words of my lips, in the meditation of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 19, it may be found on page 1217 of your pew Bible. Listen to the word of the Lord. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that... that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant 
to all, that I might win more of them. The Apostle Paul writes 1 Corinthians 9 to explain to the church in Corinth why he does what he does. The church in Corinth has asked Paul to, to, uh, whether or not it's okay to eat food that has been sacrificed to idols. The Apostle Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 8, the chapter that precedes this one, that it, will, it really depends. The Apostle Paul points out that food sacrificed to idols is really harmless. However, he points out that if by eating meat sacrificed to idols, it appears that you support idolatry, then it's better not to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Even though under Christ, we are free to eat whatever meat we want. Let me repeat that again. Under Christ, we are free to eat whatever meat we want. Can I get an amen from the uh, meat packers out there? Yes, in 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul explains that he is free to do a list of things, a lot of things. He has great freedom under Christ. But in service to others, he chooses not to do so, so that the gospel might be spread more effectively. Paul explains that in service to others, he tries to become all things to all people, so that in doing, he might save some. It is the Great Commission that ultimately motivates the Apostle Paul to do what he does. And Paul is willing to do whatever it takes to reach people with the gospel of Christ. Because he knows, ultimately, eternity is stake is at stake with the gospel of Christ. When Paul is with the Jews, he honors their dietary laws and acts like a Jew. When Paul is with those who are outside the law of Moses, Paul will eat the foods that are given to him and become like them. In essence, the apostle Paul is saying that he dies to himself and his own personal preferences so that he might win as many people as possible for the cause of Christ. Now, just to be real clear here, Even though Paul lets us know that we have great freedom in Christ, if you read all of 1 Corinthians, you will see that the Apostle Paul still believes that Christians should be governed by the basic sexual ethic of the Mosaic Law. Paul is not advocating that we break the Ten Commandments. He isn't saying that that because we have Christ, we can break every law in the book. Rather, he's saying that when it comes to dietary laws, specific dietary laws, or specific rituals that the Jews have, we have freedom in Christ. We don't have to obey those laws anymore. But the Apostle Paul chooses to observe the dietary and ritual laws of the Jews when he's with the Jews so that he might reach the Jews with the gospel of Christ. The Apostle Paul acts like a Gentile when he's with Gentiles so that he might reach them. It's like when I go to Kenya to preach, I would be invited to go and speak at Kenya. And in Kenya, the preacher always wears a coat and tie, even if he's preaching in 110-degree heat. I was outside speaking at this open-air crusade in 110-degree heat, and believe me, the last thing I wanted to do was wear a coat and tie. But in honor to my Kenyan brothers and sisters, I kept the coat and tie on so that I might preach the gospel so that it might have a hearing that day. Yes, as followers of Christ, as we model what Paul did... And as we model what Jesus did, who became one of us, so that he might save all of us, we need to be flexible, willing to adapt to reach those who are far from God. Paul is very intentional in his living. Like an athlete, he trains intentionally so that he might win as many people as possible for the cause of Christ. As a church, 
Are we doing all that we can to reach people for the cause of Christ? As I shared just a moment ago, any church that's worth its weight is focused on the Great Commission, making disciples of Jesus Christ. After all, that's what Jesus told us to do, his final words. We are to go and make disciples. Now, the specific mission statement of our church is to discover and live the way of Christ in the expansive grace of God. Let's say that together. Discover and live the way of Christ in the expansive grace of God. We study the life of Jesus and seek to become like Jesus by doing the kinds of things that Jesus did. One of the reasons that we have same gender triads, groups of three or four, is because Jesus had three men, Peter, James, and John, that he was closest to, and he was most vulnerable with those men. And so we try to model the kind of ministry that Jesus had. One of the reasons that we have so many small groups in this church is because Jesus had 12 men that he poured his life into and sharing life with them and opening and praying with them and seeking to guide them together. We serve others in our community because, well, Jesus did. In fact, we have a core four strategy of worship, grow, connect, and serve. As we try to live like Jesus, we believe that every follower of Jesus should, should worship God weekly. We believe every disciple should be in a, an a intimate fellowship community where they can grow together as they gather around God's word for a study and for prayer. We believe that like Jesus, we should reach out to others and, and seek to connect them to the body of Christ here so they might experience God's love firsthand, so they might hear the gospel for themselves. And over the next four weeks, we're going to do a sermon series talking about the core four strategy of our church, worship, grow, connect, and serve. Today, as we look at 1 Corinthians 9, we can see that in service to others, in service to the others, the Apostle Paul submitted his own personal preferences to the desires of others so that he might reach as many as possible for the cause of Christ. As a church, are we doing that? Are we sacrificing our own personal preferences so that we might reach as many as possible for the cause of Christ? Now, this past summer, we have certainly spent a lot of time and money ministering to the needs of others outside the walls of this place as we seek to serve them. This past week, we just helped with a uh, school supply drive as a part of the Four Amarillo Partnership, helping provide school supplies to some of the poorest elementary schools in our community. As a part of 4 Amarillo, we also refurbished a home for a needy family in July, and we led a vacation Bible school at uh, at one of the poorest elementary schools, San Jacinto Elementary. In July, we sent folks to Honduras to minister to the poor there. In June, our youth went to Los Angeles to minister to the homeless who were on Skid Row there. Yes, God is is certainly using our church to serve others as we put the needs of others before our own, both through local and global missions. But what about in worship? What about in worship? Are we doing all that we can to reach as many as people as possible for the gospel of Christ? Now, we all know that the focus of worship is always God. Our greatest desire is to glorify God in our worship. God is the focus of worship, whether we are singing traditional hymns, gospel songs, or contemporary praise songs. God is always the focus of our worship. In fact, under our worship strategy, our session voted in the fall of 2011 that one of its goals was to have spirit-led worship that glorifies God first and foremost with a vision of adding worship services. We wrote that in 2011. Well, in 2012, we launched the 1105 Contemporary Service downstairs. And as you may recall, before we had 1105, we had two services of worship here. We had an 830 traditional service and an 11 a.m. blended praise service. 
In fact, this church has had two services of worship for a very long time. 25 years ago, our two worship services were both traditional, 8, 30, and 11, but the choir only sang at 11 25 years ago. However, as the culture changed and contemporary praise music began to grow, this church, under the leadership of Alan Meenan, started a blended contemporary service in the early 1990s. We had Steve Godsey leading the worship at that time. Raise your hand if you remember Steve Godsey. Anybody here? Oh, man. Everyone I know who has met Steve Godsey, he's like, he was like Jesus on the piano. He was so good. Norman's great, too. But Steve had a gift to be able to blend the old and the new and all together. It was great. Well, we love Steve Godsey, and, and he had to move, and so he, he moved out of town. And we brought Michael Neagle, and, and Michael Neagle was one of the more talented contemporary musicians I've ever worked with. He's an amazing uh, leader. And, and, and the music went away from a blended style into more of a contemporary style, but there were certainly still tr- traditional elements within the worship service at 11. In fact, on the Sunday that I visited as a candidate, summer of uh, 2010, June of 2010, there was one combined service here in the sanctuary. You may remember that. It's kind of worship tends to low. So we combined to one service. And we had some contemporary elements and we had some traditional elements. And we tried to blend it all together. Well, as I remember talking to some of the younger members of the pastor nominating committee. And I could tell that that service with its blended style wasn't really ministering and reaching out to the younger families in this community. In fact, one of the members of the PNC said, you know, you don't play an organ at a contemporary service. Now, I've got to be honest, I've been involved with three different contemporary services, helping start three different contemporary services in three different churches, and you don't normally play an organ at a contemporary service. Now, when I was interviewed uh, here, I, they gave me a tour of the building, and I saw the Fellowship Center, which used to look like a 1950s cafeteria. Uh, we've still got some pictures of it in the Great Hall there, the hallway down there. And uh, I recommended that what they ought to do is, uh, you know, you ought to renovate that Fellowship Center and make it a space for contemporary worship. And I was given all kinds of reasons why we couldn't do that, you know, the sound and whatnot. And I said, well, hey, 21st century, you can soundproof anything. And so by God's grace, uh, I was called here to be your senior pastor. And a few months into it, we launched a capital improvement campaign, and we renovated the uh, Fellowship Center. And uh, we saw that when we launched a 1105 contemporary praise service, people came. In fact, from the numeric success of 1105, we can see that when you commit to a new style of worship, worship attendance can grow as we attract new people to a new style of worship. Now, our average weekly worship attendance was around 350 before we launched 1105. Today, in the fall and spring, it's around 500. Many people today, and it shot up. I mean, it was 350, 350, then 1105 started, boom, 500. It happened, very clear. 1105 was the contributing factor there. Now, many people today have very strong musical preferences, don't they? Personally, I can worship God to traditional hymns or gospel hymns or contemporary praise songs. But some people only want to sing a certain type of style. Some people, they just want to sing Chris Tomlin's, Holy is Lord, God Almighty, the earth is filled with this glory. That's a great song. Other people prefer to sing Martin Luther's Reformed hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Great song. Love that song too. But other people want to sing primarily gospel music. Like, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away when I die. Hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. When it comes to worship in the 21st century, here in Texas, there are so many different ways to worship God, faithful ways to worship God. When it comes to worship, 
Are we, the members of First Pres, doing all that we can to reach as many people as possible for the kingdom of Christ? Over the last two years, we have had two distinct styles of worship, but we've had three worship services. Does that maximize our ability to reach people within the community of Amarillo? Three worship services, but only two styles? We've had a contemporary worship service at 11.05 and two traditional services at 8.30 and 11. During the same time, we've also asked the choir to be here from 8 a.m. to noon to help lead these traditional services. They've got to be here from 8 to noon, four hours, plus rehearse an hour and a half in the middle of the week. Now, we have a great choir. I love our choir. I've taken verbal bullets for our choir to try to help our choir grow. I love them dearly. But the average age of our choir is 65. And if you remove the three youngest members of our choir, which includes Chuck Alexander, if you take Chuck out of the equation, (laughs) did you know you're young, Chuck? (laughs) You take Chuck out, shoots up to 70. You're bringing down the average, Chuck. (laughs) If we don't do something different, and soon, We may not have a choir in 10 years. One of the hindrances to the growth of our choir in this church is that we ask them to be here from 8 a.m. to noon. What often happens on any given Sunday is a choir member will choose to sing at either 8.30 or 11. I don't blame them. So on a typical Sunday, we might have 17 people who are willing to sing in the choir, but we only have 7 at 8.30 and maybe 10 at 11 or vice versa. Wouldn't it make more sense to ask the choir just to come for one hour so we can concentrate those 17 voices together so they can lead us in the worship of Almighty God through a traditional service? In fact, according to our director of worship, the primary role of the choir is to lead the congregation in the singing of prayers to God. That's what the choir exists for, to lead us in singing. In a traditional worship service where the music is a little more complicated, the congregation needs the practiced and trained voices of a choir to help lead us. Now, my first summer here, as you know, the choir can often disappear. They go to the PDC and other places. And we had several Sundays in a row, and we did not have a choir. And we, as the congregation, at 8.30, we tried to, to lead uh, just through congregational singing one of some of these wonderful old hymns. And i got to be honest with you, we weren't that good. <laughs> We need choir. We need a choir to help us in our singing of praises to God in traditional worship. So if we know that our choir has struggled to sing at both 8.30 and 11, which service should they sing at? Well, the service where we receive the greatest number of visitors who register, who register in the little friendship pad in the sanctuary, it's at 11 o'clock. Which makes sense, right? I mean, the primary hour of worship in the United States is 11 o'clock. If you're going to come and visit a church, you go to that church usually at 11 o'clock. Now, let's just think about that for a moment. Think about this church through the eyes of a visitor. When a visitor comes to our church for the first time at 11 o'clock and they approach our beautiful building, our facility with its neo-Gothic style architecture and beautiful steeple and they walk into this sanctuary and they see this beautiful stained glass and they, they know that we have the third largest organ in town, their expectations are that they're going to hear some traditional music, right? Every now and then, someone gives me free tickets to the symphony. I love going to the symphony because uh, my mom's a voice and piano teacher, kind of grew up with hearing classical music. And uh, every time I go, or not every time, but often the last few times I've been, the conductor will uh, say, you know, tonight I have a friend who's written a wonderful piece, and we're going to premiere it here in Amarillo for the first time. 
And I'm thinking, oh, man, I wanted to hear Mozart and Beethoven. We're going to hear something new. And so they play this new piece. But I see that in the second half, it's Beethoven and Mozart. And so I stick around. But the reality is when you're a guest, you come with expectations. And we as a church want to help as best we can reach those expectations so that people might have ears to hear the gospel of Christ. Furthermore, the 11 o'clock service is the service with the largest average attendance this last winter and spring. So doesn't it make sense that if we're going to have our choir just sing at one service, shouldn't we have them sing at the 11 o'clock hour? Particularly when most of our visitors come during that time expecting to sing traditional hymns as they walk into this sanctuary. Remember, the church exists for the sake of others. We're called to be driven by the Great Commission. God has commissioned us to go and make disciples, and we can see from the life of Paul that we have to be flexible if we want to be able to reach as many people as possible for the cause of Christ. Worship's not about us. It's not about what I personally want or what you want. Worship is about God and what God wants. And I believe God wants us to attract as many people as possible to worship him in spirit and in truth. Whether we're singing traditional hymns, contemporary, gospel, contemporary songs, or gospel songs, when it comes to worship, excellence honors God and inspires man. Excellence honors God and inspires man. Whatever, whatever style of worship we choose, we need to do, try to do the best we can. When we have a full choir helping lead us in worship, it is an inspiring experience for all who come. When our choir is spread out between two different services, the singing is less robust and the energy level is lower. Now, you need to know that I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people about this idea. In fact, there was a comment made at the February session meeting by our elder Bruce Doss that really stood out to me. It was a clarifying statement. It clarified what I believe God's calling us to do. Bruce Doss pointed out that it doesn't make much sense to split our traditional worship services, our traditional worshipers into two services. It doesn't make much sense to, to, to split our traditional worshipers into two services. That doesn't make sense, does it? We have people who, who like traditional worship, and yet we split them out between two services, 8, 30, and 11. And we split our choir out between two services. It seems to make a little more strategic sense that if we're trying to reach as many people as possible with the gospel of Christ, if we're going to have three worship services, shouldn't we have three styles that might attract three types of people? In April, I met with our worship director and music director about the need to just have the choir at 11. I met with the music ministry team and the choir as well and shared the vision of having three styles of worship every Sunday. Starting in September, we'll have a gospel praise service at 8.30 with a Y'all Come Sing Choir, just like what you just saw here a moment ago. And all you got to do is to be a part of that choir, show up at 8, low commitment. Show up at 8, rehearse familiar songs, sing at 8.30, and you're done. Easy entry point into our choir. We'll have a traditional service at 11 with a full choir, and we'll continue to have our wonderful contemporary service at 11.05 downstairs. As I spoke to these different groups who know that our choir is not growing, the general consensus was we need to try this at least for a season and see what God might do. The one thing I do know is that if we keep doing what we've always done, we're going to get what we've, what we've always gotten. To do the same thing over and over and over again and to expect a different result, that's the definition of insanity. And I'm not crazy. If we keep trying to have the choir sing at 8, 30, and 11, always in the back of our sanctuary, the choir is going to continue to age and shrink, and pretty soon we won't have a choir. And our traditional worship service will suffer for it. 
Now, I wouldn't suggest three styles of worship if I didn't think we could do three styles of worship well. Fortunately, God has blessed this church with some amazing, amazing musicians. Dusty and his band do a great job leading contemporary worship every Sunday morning at 11.05 downstairs. When our choir is all together leading us in traditional worship, it is amazing. When we have men, when we've had men like Chuck Alexander and and Brandon Smith lead us in gospel music, it is fantastic. You need to know that I've also had lunch with every elder in our church through the month of July and the first part of August to talk about the the need to, to alter our worship styles. The general consensus from those conversations is that we should try these three styles of worship for a season as we seek to be strategic and try to reach as many people as possible with the gospel of Christ. So for 12 weeks from September to November, we're going to offer three styles of worship. A gospel praise service at 8.30, a traditional service at 11, and a contemporary service at 11.05. So that you don't think I'm crazy, you may have thought that, but I'm not crazy. First Press Houston actually does this format and it works really well for them. I used to work there for many years. During December and the season of Advent, we will return to a more traditional format at 8, 30, 11, because we're going to be singing lesson, uh, carols, Christmas carols. But from September to November, we're going to try this new format. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul lets us know that we need to be flexible if we want to reach as many people as possible with the gospel of Christ. In deference to others, we need to serve them and do what we can to reach them. Surveying our own people to determine the personal preference of our people is not going to tell us if the outsider will be attracted to a gospel praise service at 8.30. We won't know until we try. I had a conversation several months ago with a longtime member of our church who loves to go to 8.30 and talked to him about the need to have the choir at just one service and how 11 o'clock is really the service that they need to be singing at and leading us in worship because that's when we get the most visitors and it's actually the larger service. And I shared the idea of having a a gospel service, praise service at 8.30 to help the choir uh, and to reach more people uh, with the gospel. And this person, you know, just in honesty and openness said, well, I don't really want to sing gospel praise service at 8.30. I said, well, yeah, but you can go to 11 if you want to sing traditional hymns. Yeah, but I don't want to go until 11 (laughs) o'clock. I, 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 I. When has worship ever been about what I want or you want? Is it worship about what God wants. As I look at the gospel of Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents, I believe God wants us to mobilize as many people as possible with the talents God has given them to help lead us in different styles of worship. As I look at 1 Corinthians 9, I believe that God wants us to offer as many styles of worship as we possibly can do well. Because excellence, it honors God and it inspires man. Because we want your input, though, as a part of this process and this strategy, you may have noticed that as you opened your bulletin, there was a yellow slip of paper in there. I think you've, let's see, I got mine. And we want your input. It says, favorite traditional hymns. I got five here for 11 a.m. Favorite gospel praise songs, like All Fly Away and and the song we we sang just a moment ago, Soon and Very Soon. We, I want you to write down your favorite songs, praise songs, gospel praise songs. I want you then to write down at 11 o'clock your favorite traditional hymns. And we're going to do the best we can to play those hymns and those gospel praise songs at 8.30 and 11. So that's an opportunity for you to offer input and some direction to us as we seek to reach as many people as possible with the gospel of Christ. In our country today, there are many faithful styles of worship that we can use to worship God. Following the example of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 
Doesn't it make the most sense to provide as many styles of worship as possible so that we are able to attract as many people as possible so they might hear the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ so that they, too, might be saved. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul who died to himself and put the needs of others before his own, who was flexible and sought to do whatever he could to to minister to the needs of others. That when he was with the Jews, he acted like a Jew, and when he was with the Gentiles, he acted like a Gentile so that he might have a hearing and win a hearing for the gospel, the gospel of grace that offers eternal salvation. God, I pray that we as a church might continue to be as strategic as we possibly can, that we might be flexible, that we might try whatever we can to reach people with the gospel of Christ. I pray, Lord, for this experiment, that if it's your will, you would just continue to guide us in it, Lord, that you would draw people unto yourself, that people who love gospel praise music would come at 830, and those who love traditional hymns would come at 11, and that we could advertise ourselves as a church that does all that we can to reach as many people as we can for the gospel of Christ. For it's the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that ultimately saves our soul. Well, God, we thank you for your love. We pray your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. In your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said,